Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000. They're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100, uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes, that's his name, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy, and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E, text the word wine to 511-511, and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three-bottle order. So text wine to 511-511, Cameron Hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is Malcolm Nance. Malcolm is a U.S. intelligence expert, author of several books, including his latest, The Plot to Destroy Democracy, his website, thetacticsofterror.org. You can tweet him at Malcolm Nance, N-A-N-C-E. Malcolm, welcome to the program. 
Good to be here, Tom. Great to have you with us. You noted the other day on Bill Maher's show something that just absolutely shocked me and that I thought really needs to get more highlighting. And I'm even thinking that probably it hasn't because much of the media just doesn't want to go there. It's such an extraordinary place. And that is that you suggested that the private meeting between Trump and Putin was essentially a second Yalta. Can you talk about that, please? Sure. If you think about it, certainly the way that Russia has spent the last decade or more co-opting practically every conservative movement in Europe, and now over the last four years has co-opted the American Conservative Party, both through the evangelical movement, certainly with their anti-gay campaigns, and the National Rifle Association, and now, apparently, the entire Congress of the United States. You know, Donald Trump, prior to this, really didn't have any real strategic worldview. He was out to make money. And only recently we have we seen in the last few years that he's adopted completely the Kremlin party line and how the world should be viewed. That being said, the plan of Russia and Vladimir Putin, former KGB officer, ex-director of the FSB, which is the successor to the KGB, is quite simply to be the leader of the Christian conservative movement in the world. And in fact, many Americans over the last 10 years have said just that. They believe Russia to be the heart of Christian conservatism, because in the post-communist world, Russia determined that that's what they were. They were always a conservative nation, and without the yoke of communism on them, they could create their own destiny. Donald Trump is a manufactured asset of that destiny. And that being said, him and Putin alone in the world were, in my opinion, affecting what they essentially have been saying in public which is that the old world order of NATO, the Atlantic Alliance, the axis between Washington and the European capitals is old, defunct, and should be done away with. And Donald Trump is in complete agreement with that. You saw just a few days before he had called the European Union our foe, now essentially our enemy, and that NATO needed to essentially pay up in an extortionate-like scheme. Yeah. Therefore, sitting down with Putin you come to the conclusion that these two were affecting that world order, and we were seeing a 21st century Yalta, where they were deciding how that was going to be. Now, Yalta was where Churchill, Stalin, and uh, Roosevelt sat down and carved up Europe and Northern Africa. Are you suggesting that there was an actual, let's sit down and carve up the world? Okay, uh, we're going to get Poland, you can have Hungary, or is this a metaphor? It's more of a metaphor, but if you think about it, just in, in terms of how Donald Trump behaves. And, you know, for years I, I had been trying to wrap my head around how did Trump ad adopt the philosophy that he has. Where did his worldview come from? It certainly didn't come from, you know, his doing business around the world. It really came from a meeting that he had in 2013 at the Miss Universe pageant where he sat down with the 12 richest men of Russia in secret, just like this meeting in, in Helsinki, in secret for two hours. And when he came out of that meeting, you can see the transformation in all of his tweets and his comments. He came out speaking the Russian party line. Every word of it. I mean, within three months of that meeting, Russia would invade Crimea and Trump would be praising Vladimir Putin and hammering Barack Obama as a weak leader. Also, at the same time, it was, we now find out, he had already made plans to run for president. He had 
registered Make America Great Again PAC as early as November 2012. So that being said, speaking sort of metaphorically, the carving up of the world was essentially done when Donald Trump became president and it established the United States as a Western axis of this axis of autocracies that Vladimir Putin has been harboring, that he tried to bring into power in Austria. He did bring them into power in Austria, actually. He funded a group that was an ex-Nazi party that was literally a Nazi-founded organization in 1952, now took party with Hans Christian Strache, the prime minister of Austria in 2016, tried to take control of the government of France by placing Marine Le Pen at the head of that. But each one of these parties, they're not even Eurosceptic, the way they used to call it. They are anti-Europe. They are anti-NATO. They are anti-international treaty regimes that have existed since World War II. And Putin has managed to co-op a fair part of Europe. So Trump, Putin, and these European conservative parties like La Lega and the Five Star Movement in Italy essentially were de facto taking sections of the old world and moving it towards a conservative consensus. But to what extent might that be kind of great minds think alike as opposed to, you know, one person controlling another or one country controlling another? I mean, the the same forces that made Russia conservative largely, number one, our sending over a bunch of people from the Chicago School of Economics to advise Boris Yeltsin on how to privatize his economy. And they were all libertarians. They basically said, oh, you don't need government structure. You don't, you know, you don't need regulation. Here's how you privatize the country. And it was guaranteed to create an oligarchy. I mean, there were people at the time saying this is going to create an oligarchy. And also at that time, Russia was dealing with the Chechen rebels. They had a Muslim insurgency going on inside their country and on their own borders. These are the things, these kinds of forces that tends to frighten people. They hunker down, they get conservative, they go reactionary, they go military. You're seeing now as a result of the destruction of the Libyan government, 600,000 people have fled from Libya across the strait there right into southern Italy. 300,000 of them are still in Italy. And they spread from there into other parts of Europe. And, and the backlash to this is, has prompted Orban and Hungary and Poland now and you know, right. numerous countries to just go right. And these right-wing movements are springing up. Could it just be that they're all basically reacting to the same forces and therefore, of course, they're going to align? That's all completely possible. But you also have to take into account, let's step back to the fall of the Soviet Union. You had a nation that once liberty, quote-unquote, liberty and democracy, had come to that country, they lost their bearings. They really did not know what they were supposed to be. I mean, by 1995, Russians were actually taking polls saying that they would prefer the reestablishment of the Soviet Union and the central government than to the kind of, you know, American free-thinking liberty that they thought that no, they I No, w- I was there. I was working in Kaliningrad for a little while well, it, you know, with, you an, with an international and relief organization. And I can tell you, the poverty was absolutely breathtaking. It was, I mean, people were... It. People were on the edge of starving. I was there in the winter in Kaliningrad, and it was insane. I mean, you know, people burning their furniture right. to keep warm. That is the cauldron in which autocracies thrive. Right. And you're talking about an autocracy that rose from the ashes when Vladimir Putin went to work for the mayor of St. Petersburg as an ex-KGB officer. And his job was to bring under control the looting of 
state assets in that part of Russia. And he did. He used ex-KGB and active FSB officers to essentially guarantee the mafia their share or kill them. And that being done, that brought him to the attention of Yeltsin, who needed that done on a national scale. But Putin is a different kind of person. When he got out of the KGB, he was in his late 40s. And he saw that Russia needed, like all Russians know, you know, a strong central leader that is could give them the consumerism that they needed and bring to order the oligarchy under him. Yeah, I'm and not so trying to excuse this, but yeah. I think that that was fairly predictable given the situation. Sure. I, I, like I said, I was in the country the day that Yeltsin was elected, which was bizarre. I mean, just the whole election, I could tell you wild stories. But the other thing that fascinates me, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, is when Trump was bankrupt, uh, you know, according mm-hmm. to his, both his sons now have been on the record saying, you know, most of our assets are coming from Russia. Do you think it's possible that he was so bankrupt that he couldn't get loans from American banks anymore? He turned to Russian oligarchs, and that was the point at which his fate and future were sealed because he now owes them his entire empire. I mean, his family would be living on Skid Row if they were to pull their loans. Well, absolutely. Deutsche Bank secured those loans, but they were backed by Russian oligarchs. And, you know, Robert Mueller got access to those bank documents last December. So that's all going to come out. But one last thing, when you do that, when an intelligence officer like Putin dangles money out from his richest friends in front of you, he now owns you. And a guy like him, a human intelligence officer, will manipulate him. But another thing that he'll do is he saw Trump was easy, that he could build a meta-narrative around him to where Trump's decision-making process will always and forever benefit his base, which is Russia and its oligarchs. Yeah. Malcolm Nance, his new book is The Plot to Destroy Democracy. The website is thetacticsofterror.org. You can tweet him at Malcolm Nance. Malcolm, thanks a lot for dropping by today. Good talking with you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. It's the Tom Hartman program. Okay, I promised you a story that I think is being largely ignored by the media, and I think it's huge. It's absolutely huge. And I want to share with you, there's two stories, there's two pieces to this. And the first part is the setup, and the second part is the punchline, essentially. And you really need to pay attention to both, okay? First, the setup. Democratic Senator Bill Nelson of Florida claimed Wednesday, this is from uh, uh, Newsweek by Ramsey Touchberry. Democratic Senator Bill Nelson of Florida claimed Wednesday that Russia had already infiltrated some parts of the state's voter registration system. Now, notice... This is not, they have infiltrated the voting machines. They're not saying that, at least not in this Newsweek article that echoes most of the other reports. It's that they are in the voter registration system. The voter registration system is where your voter registration is held. If you just answered the Democratic call and said, yes, I want to vote in the the, the 2016 election. Bill Nelson, the senator from Florida, along with Marco Rubio, by the way, Marco Rubio, the Republican senator from Florida, says, yes, what Nelson is saying is spot on. I agree. And and so is the chair, Richard Burr, the Republican from North Carolina, I believe, uh, the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee is also saying this. In fact, he's the one who told uh, Rubio and Nelson to begin with. This is Nelson's quote, quote, they have already penetrated certain counties in the state and they now have free reign to move about. As Senator Rubio and I wrote in our letter to the 67 county supervisors of elections, the threat is real and and elections officials at all levels need to address the vulnerabilities. Now, keep in mind what Bill Nelson is saying here 
is that the registration is infiltrated. And in fact, here's the, the end of his quote. He said, you can imagine the chaos that would occur on election day when voters get to the polls and the poll worker says, I'm sorry, Mr. Smith. I'm sorry, Mr. Jones. You're not registered. Nelson adds, that's exactly what the Russians want to do. They want to sow chaos in our democratic institutions. Well, if it's Democrats who aren't getting registered, then it gets real interesting, right? Which takes us to a piece by Mark Caputo in Politico. And this went up yesterday, politico.com. You can read it. The headline is, where's the blue wave? Voter data show Florida Democrats aren't surging. And I'll, I'll just read you a few sentences from it. Florida's Democratic Party has lost a share of its registered vote in Florida since 2016, and the percentage of Democrats casting vote-by-mail absentee ballots this month trails those mailed in by Republicans. Now, keep in mind, you don't get an absentee ballot unless you're registered to vote. If your name has been taken off the voting rolls, or if you registered and your name was never put on the voting rolls, you're not going to get an absentee ballot. The article continues, if a blue wave is forming, it certainly hasn't crested, says Daniel Smith, a University of Florida political science professor who studies the state's voter rolls and trends. Democrats hoped for advantages concerning Hispanic voters, Democratic voter registration, Democratic ballots cast, or young voters have not clearly materialized heading into the August 28 primary. Active registered Democrats are down by nearly two percentage points compared with just a year and a half ago, 2016. Down since the 2016 election, which was only 18 months ago. I guarantee you 2% of registered Democrats in Florida didn't move out of the state. There's no similar loss on the Republican side, just on the Democratic side. And they add, because Florida doesn't allow last-minute voter registration, these numbers are final. This is it. Florida has, has somehow removed 2% of the Democratic voters from their voting rolls. And, you know, as we go into the election, is this Chris Kobach, interstate cross-check? I guess we need to get Greg Palace back on to talk about this. Or is this the result of the hackers? Whichever it is, somebody needs to look into this and, in my opinion, do something about it. I'm just horrified by this. I'm, I'm thinking I should write an op-ed for Alternate to get off the air about it because nobody is putting two to two together. You've got a senator saying that the voting registration rolls have been hacked uh, by Russians specifically, but just broadly speaking, have been hacked. And his concern is that people will show up to vote and will be given provisional ballots and told they're not registered. And then you've got Politico doing this study and finding that 2% of all Democrats in the state of Florida have been removed from the voting rolls in the past 18 months. And what's totally weird is that the entire Politico story never once raises the possibility that they were removed from the voting rolls for partisan purposes or as the consequence of a hack. It's, you know, the, the entire assumption of the Politico piece is, oh, Democrats just decided not to show up this year in Florida. In fact, not only did they not register to vote, but hundreds of thousands of them just removed their voter voting registration, just decided, eh, I don't want to be registered anymore. I just find that bizarre. <sighs> Boy, we live in uh, strange times and interesting times, uh, whatever the old saying is, and it doesn't get weirder than it is right now, I'll tell you. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but... The website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead. And it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, uh, into, your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. 
And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder. And as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool. And meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know, helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now. And I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10-book contract right now, and I'm writing so much every single day. I used, to, I used to sit down to write and say, OK, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, I got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at choosemuse, M-U-S-E, choosemuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. Choosemuse.com. Donald Trump saying, good work by General Kelly for quickly firing that dog, uh, referring to Omarosa. Roberta Chalmers tweets back, you called her a dog? What's wrong with you? You should be so ashamed of yourself. Otto English tweets back, perhaps electing an apprentice host to be president of the U.S. wasn't such a great idea, America. He still thinks he's in his fake boardroom. David Badish tweets back, please remove the American flag from your Twitter page, Trump. You're an embarrassment to the nation. Amanda tweets back, I don't like presidents who call women dogs. Margie Murdoch tweets back, oh my God, that's a terrible thing for you to say. Wow, zero self-control. Glenn at the Food Truck Kings tweets back, can you read what you just wrote? This is a man, maybe in your case, talking to a woman, talking about a woman. That is disgusting language. I don't care who is right or wrong here. Just totally disgusting language from any person. And Patrick Tomlinson at Worldcon 76 tweets back, trading the racist dog whistle for a racist megaphone, sippy cup Caligula. Right. Okay, so number one, you know, what's that all about? Number two, I don't know why we didn't all like just totally expect this, but the Congressional Budget Office, the agency in the federal government put into place by Congress to provide Congress with nonpartisan, unbiased, actual, factual budget information. The Congressional Budget Office has come out and said that if you want to give somebody health care in the United States right now, you have basically two choices. You can sign them up for Obamacare, in which case the government is subsidizing the, the, the cost of their health insurance, or you can sign them up for Medicaid, in which case government is paying for the entire cost of their health insurance or of their health care. Medicare or Medicaid is a health insurance program. And it turns out that Medicaid is cheaper than Obamacare in terms of what the government pays. Obamacare costs an average of $6,300 per person per year. Medicaid costs an average of $4,900 per person per year. Now, why would that be? Well, because Obamacare is done with private for-profit insurance companies who have to skim 20% off the top just to stay in business and pay their executives hundreds of millions of dollars a year and, you know, buy corporate jets with gold-plated water faucets and have a board of directors where everybody's making millions of dollars. And uh, in the case of United Healthcare, have over 100 executives who make more than a million dollars a year. All this kind of stuff. I mean, these uh, salespeople and logos and fancy buildings and marketing campaigns, none of that is paid for by Medicaid. 
Medicaid is, you know, it's a very simple government office with uh, government workers, government bureaucrats who are, you know, making a decent wage with a decent pension, but, you know, they're not making anything like the billion dollar plus paycheck that Stephen J. Hemsley has taken out of United Healthcare. So here we have proof. If Medicaid is cheaper than Obamacare, and Obamacare is about as efficient as you can get in terms of, of health insurance. I mean, they, they, in fact, the health insurance companies were taking anywhere from 30 to 50% off the top just for themselves as their skimmed off profit. Obamacare cut that down to 20%, maximum 20%, but that's still 20% we don't need to pay. Medicaid runs with about a 2% overhead. Ob you know, Obamacare, and, and, which is not to knock Obamacare specifically, but anything that involves private health insurance is going to run with a 20, 25% overhead or more. Plus, you've got the federal bureaucracy on top of that because somebody has to pay the insurance companies. Yesterday, somebody called and asked about Nancy Pelosi. You know, when are we going to get new leadership for the Democratic Party? And I was like, come on, this is a Republican meme. This is pure and simple. You know, they don't like powerful women. Republicans are intimidated by and afraid of powerful women. And I would say, in fact, Omarosa, you know, she's she has a following. She is well known. Everybody in America knows who she is. Right. Trump, of course, doesn't like that. Oh, my God. Powerful women. We can't have that. Well, they also don't like Nancy Pelosi because she's a powerful woman. And I went off on a rant about that yesterday, that this is nuts. Nancy Pelosi is really she's done an extraordinary job as Speaker of the House and an, an extraordinary job as House Minority Leader. And today, I don't know if Paul Krugman was listening to my thing yesterday or not, um, because yesterday he wrote this piece, Who's Afraid of Nancy Pelosi, which is just great. I, I read it in this morning's New York Times. He points out that Trump's tax, tax cuts are very unpopular. Republicans are not even bothering to run on them because everybody gets it that it's a scam. Right. It was just, you know, transferring a couple of trillion dollars to the very, very rich and, 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 and big corporations and had nothing to do with the average person. So they're not running on that anymore. Trump's trade wars remain unpopular. Uh, so what does the Republican Party have to run on? <laughs> surprise, surprise, uh, lies about how Medicare for all is going to cost a fortune when actually it's going to save us money. Lies, just flat out lies. Paul Krugman doesn't point that out in this article. Instead, he goes to the to number two, which is the other thing that you see appearing in all in many of these Republican ads where they're running for Congress and things like that. And that's Nancy Pelosi. He refers to her as a boogie woman. You know, uh, and then he says, so what has Pelosi achieved? She played a crucial role. This is, these are Paul Krugman's words. She played a crucial role in turning back George W. Bush's attempt to privatize Social Security. She was a key figure, perhaps arguably even more crucial than President Obama in passing the Affordable Care Act. She enacted financial reform, which has protected many Americans for fraud. Yes, the GOP is trying to take it apart, but there it is. She helped pass the Obama stimulus plan that turned us from losing 700,000 jobs a month to gaining hundreds of thousands of jobs a month for seven years. She, it also laid the foundation for the green energy revolution. So Paul Krugman asked the question, what's so radical? If you're going to say Pelosi is a radical Democrat, which is what the Republicans are saying, What's so radical about protecting retirement income, expanding health care, and reining in runaway bankers? Well, you know, the, the Republicans don't think anyone should have retirement income, at least not through the government. It should be done by private companies who are, you know, screwing you and taking a piece of your money. Uh, they don't think that anybody should have health care unless they've worked their way up to the top. 
and runaway bankers? That is the Republicans. And then he looks at the Republicans who were Speaker of the House. Newt Gingrich, who was cheating on his wife while he was impeaching Clinton. Dennis Hastert, molesting teenage boys. John Boehner didn't do anything except oppose everything Obama did. And Paul Ryan is a fake budget hawk. On the line with us, Dr. Joe Rahm. Joe is the physicist. He's a climate expert. He's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. He's the founding editor of climateprogress.org. He's the author of the new book, How to Go Viral and Reach Millions. His previous book, Climate Change, What Everyone Needs to Know, climateprogress.org, the website. You can uh, tweet him at climateprogress. Joe, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Tom. Or I should, I should uh, respectfully say Dr. Rahm. You have uh, certainly earned that title. You wrote a piece uh, a couple of days ago or a couple of weeks ago that uh, suggests that we may be nearing, uh, I believe this was your phrase, a climate death spiral. If I have that right, what, what do you mean? Well, uh, there was an article that came out by 16 leading climate scientists, which basically said... There are certain changes in the environment that are irreversible, and if you get to a certain point, they could be unstoppable. And it's like an avalanche. You know, once you start the avalanche, it's just going to keep going and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So you want to avoid that point. And so this article basically tried to look at what are the so-called you know, amplifying feedbacks, the vicious circles that, that if you start uh, pushing them, they actually release more greenhouse gas emissions that then create more warming um, and so on. And, and uh, what they basically said is, you know, if we hit this threshold that, that the nations of the world said in Paris in 2015, we, we must avoid, you know, two degrees Celsius warming, which is 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. If we hit those, uh, if we hit that point, then we may trigger changes that actually take us to warming, which could be five degrees C or, or nine degrees Fahrenheit. And that, of course, would be just catastrophic. Define catastrophic. Well, uh, I think when you're talking that much warming, when you're talking, let's say, 9 degrees Fahrenheit global warming, you're now talking about moving to a world where uh, the oceans are flooding, you know, all of our coastal cities. We're talking about several feet, you know, uh, four, five, six feet of sea level rise this century. And but it doesn't stop. It would keep rising a foot a decade. So on the coastal front, it's, you know, uh, a catastrophe. But inland, uh, in areas that are semi-arid, semi-arid like, uh, you know, California and in parts of our breadbasket, you're talking about moving to a purely arid, very dry climate where the natural climate is, in fact, uh, a drought. In fact, you don't call it. Of course, if, if your natural climate is a drought, you don't say you're in a drought. You just become a desert. Right. Uh, you know, that's what we mean by climate change. People have been noticing already, I think, that droughts have been getting longer and longer. Certainly, if you're on the West Coast, you notice how many long, extreme droughts we've had in the past decade or two. Uh, eventually, you just change the climate so that it's always a drought and, and you get a spolification. So the, the great risk is that some of these impacts start 
start and they compound and they accelerate. And that is is the climate death spiral. So to 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 what extent right now, what we're experiencing right now, where we're seeing uh, these massive droughts on the West Coast uh, combined combined with terrible floods on the East Coast. Uh, to what extent is that the the consequence of the planet warming versus the effect of the planet warming being to diminish the temperature gradient between the Arctic and the and the mid latitudes, which reduces the strength, the the rigidity or the resilience of the jet stream, uh, you know, this river of, of air, cold air flowing around the Arctic uh, so that it starts drooling down over, you know, land masses like North America and doesn't move the way it was moving when you and I were kids. And and uh, as a result, what would have been, you know, three days of hot weather followed by three days of rain followed by three days of hot weather as the weather systems would move through is now three weeks of hot weather. And, you know, it may not be any hotter than it was before or just slightly hotter than it was before. But because of its persistence, it's so or, or extremely rainy weather, for that matter, because of its persistence, it's so destructive. Well, that's a very good point, Tom. So there are two effects going on. So we have a gradual warming. And that warming shifts the, the, if you can envision in your mind, a bell curve where the tail at the far right is the extremes. If you just shift that, that tail, the part that used to be, you know, a once in a hundred year or once in a thousand year storm might become once every decade. So uh, you purely directly from global warming are going to see many more extreme events. And you've raised the second point, which is if we, if we change the climate in unusual ways, then there are going to be un- unexpected impacts. And one of those impacts is the weakening of the jet stream that you described. And it is certainly the case that there have been many studies in the past decade that have said, yes, you reduce the, te- the jet stream uh, that's, that pushes the weather all quickly in, you know, in, in the United States from west to east, that that strength is fueled by the temperature difference between the the arctic and and the tropics the gulf of mexico and and the tropical oceans um the it is a well-known uh effect of climate change that as you uh warm up the planet the arctic warms twice as fast and because the arctic warms twice as fast uh, you, the temperature gradient uh, does drop, and you get a weaker jet stream. So clearly that has been happening. That, you know, when you talk about record rainfalls, obviously Hurricane Harvey, Houston, last year, what, a, what was described as a once-in-25,000-year rain event where basically a hurricane came on shore and kind of just sat there for like three days. And and the deluge was terrible. And in the case of, of of droughts and wildfires, I mean, we're seeing out west again. We're seeing static, frozen, very slowly changing weather patterns where it's just hundred degree day after hundred degree day. And so you get the compounding of uh, one of the things that happens when you get an extended heat wave is that the heat dries up all the land. 
and once you dry up all the land, then all of the heat just goes into heating up the land and, and making the kindling, you know, hotter. And, uh, and that's what we have. And that's why we're seeing these record-smashing dra- uh, wildfires associated with the droughts uh, and the heat waves. So, yes, we're, we're seeing, you know, what are sometimes called nonlinear effects, where you get a quantum change in the system from one state to another, uh, you know, different state. And one of the points of this article that I wrote about uh, on climate progress is that the, the current state that we're in is not necessarily a stable state. And if you push it a little too hard, it'll be like, you know, you push a rock down the, the, the cliff and it hits other rocks and you get the avalanche. And so we, we have to fight as hard as possible to avoid, you know, getting to that point of no return. And, you know, no one can tell you exactly what it is, obviously, because we're doing this one-shot experiment on the planet. But it is critical, you know, that if you look at the science, it's clear that we are getting closer and closer to that point. And, and that's why it's so important that we, you know, elect people who are going to push back against Donald Trump and his his wanton and reckless inaction on climate change. Right. Uh, let's talk about messaging for a minute in the in the minute and a half or two minutes we have left. Um, back, geez, ten years ago, twelve years ago, something like that, maybe even a little longer. I was in a meeting with a bunch of uh, Democratic senators and members of the House of Representatives, along with several other progressive talk show hosts. And one of us raised the issue of the uh, vulnerability of our voting systems and our, our election machines. And one of the Democratic senators said to our group, and this kind of shut down the conversation, uh, that we're, the Democratic Party is not willing to talk about this out loud because we're concerned that, because A, we're not certain that it's that big a problem yet, and B, uh, even if it is, we're afraid that it'll cause people to be discouraged and not come to vote. I'm seeing something that seems like the climate change equivalent of that. Let's not scare the chickens, right? Let's not have a conversation about what the real extremes could be or where this might go. How do we message this in a way that doesn't you know, cause 10-year-olds to break down in tears and yet at the same time uh, communicates how grave the situation has already become and, and certainly how grave it has the potential to become? Well, one of the points that I make in the book, How to Go Viral and Reach Millions, is, look, we need to be honest. We're the... You know, there's enough disinformation out there. If we don't tell the accurate information, nobody will. So that's point one. But point two is you have to know how to do effective communications. And then I try in in the book uh, to explain, you know, what it means to be effective communicators. Now, you know, look, in the case of climate change, we're not saying the problem is past the point of no return and it can't be solved. We're just saying we're getting closer and closer. The solutions are here. I mean, as you know, from my writing, from Climate Progress and my books, um, you know, the clean energy, and you've reported on the clean energy revolution, it is here. We have the solutions at hand. It is quite literally politics and politicians and the oil industry and, and the, you know, the conservative Republicans who they back who have been blocking action. So I think the message, the message of, you know, how to go viral and reach millions is quite simple. Um, we are getting close to the point of no return, but there is time to act. And what's more, the sooner we act, 
the 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 fewer the impacts will be and and the slower they will occur that's the other point action aggressively in the near future means that whatever impacts we get occur at a slower rate and we have more time to deal with it yeah, that's that's really important stuff. And these these are the messages that need to be. And I mean, there's even now decarbonizing technologies out there. Uh, we saw some of this in Europe that uh, are very promising. Dr. Joe Rahm, physicist, climate expert, senior fellow at American Progress, founder of ClimateProgress.org. His most recent book, How to Go Viral and Reach Millions. Before that, climate change, what everyone needs to know. You can tweet him at Climate Progress. Joe, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's always great talking to you. Thank you so much. But on the line with us right now is Kimon Freeman, the program director and host at We Act Radio, an activist with Black Lives Matter DC. WeActRadio.com is the website, and uh, Kimon's uh, Twitter handle is Gorilla Artist. Kimon, welcome back to the program. Peace, Tom. I'm curious your thoughts on Trump's tweet about Omarosa. Well, I think you answered it well yesterday on your show when you said this is the classic dog whistle in terms of what white supremacists have done since the dawn of time in this country and is attacking black people's intelligence. I mean, up until just last year, Hollywood was telling the world that black movies wouldn't sell overseas. I just wanted to sink in. They were saying that black movies don't matter outside of America, which is huh. like laughable when we think about all of the black artists who had to flee America to have a career. The Paul Robesons, the countless artists that had to go overseas to have a, a career. Uh, so he's sticking to the tried and proven status quo in terms of sending dog whistles out. I shouldn't even say dog whistles because right now everyone can hear this whistle and I think that we're witnessing the dismantling of white supremacy brick by brick and they're just circling the wagons. Do you see him calling an African American woman, a black woman, a dog as more misogyny, racism, both, or is the issue of just the general dehumanization of other people? I mean, famously in Rwanda, they called the Tutsis cockroaches. In Germany in the 30s, Hitler called the Jews rats. That continued for like eight years in the media and in the press. What is the consequence of this? What do you think this really is all about? Again, this is a long trail of tears. They have to, in order to dehumanize people, to justify the treatment of these people, is to refer to them as animals. It's a consistent tactic, as you alluded to. But we've heard the same things applied to Michelle Obama. Uh, Florida is not just online from trolls, but there was even police officers here in the nation's capital who shared that same sentiment and actually threatened to shoot her. And That's right, I'd forgotten. That's been a while. With. Yeah, there's a long trail of tears, and it's all coming to the surface, and I'm glad it's out in the open, and we have to deal with the ugly truth of America, and we're going to wrestle with it, as you've seen in Portland two weeks ago and here in D.C. just on Sunday. Yeah, and speaking of that, give us a recap of what happened in D.C. this last weekend. Well, I would say that the protesters were somewhere in the upwards of 15 to 20,000. I think that the white supremacist alt-right or whatever they want to go by in mainstream media, but it's white supremacist rally, uh, was somewhere around two or 300. And uh, they were the recipients of preferential treatment. Uh, they received, for those who do not know, private car, police escorts, and no one knows what that cost was, and no one knows who paid for it. And it was falsely reported that uh, they were refused to do so. 
The Metro released a statement saying that they would not provide preference for treatment for a hate group, but inadvertently they did do it. Uh, they said it was a matter of security, and I just want people to understand that imagine Black Lives Matter protesters receiving a police escort in a private car in Boston commemorating the, the death of a police officer. That is uh, paramount to what has happened here, and actually it's even worse because Black Lives Matter is not directly responsible for anyone's death, but white supremacists were here honoring the death of a young girl who died as a result of their activities. Yeah, yeah, it's truly bizarre. Is the police department in D.C., are they going to thoughtfully look into this? Are they capable of introspection, do you think? Yes, I've reached out to them myself personally, and um, inquiries have been made. I urge people to join this. This is a national concern. This is the nation's capital. It's just, this is not Cleveland. This is the nation's capital. I can give the email address out. It's mp.dc.gov. But also, there are actually calls from the unions here asking for the board of the Washington Metro Area Transit Authority to fire the general manager who okayed this. And then, of course, Gary Larry Hogan, who's up for re-election, mind you, against a very formidable opponent and uh, been jealous. We're looking to see how this pans out in the election this year, and I hope people will get out and vote this year. And this is just small things that people can do to really resonate and go a long way if we're really serious about confronting the issues of our day. Again, this is not about safety. It was about preferential treatment to a hate group who was responsible for a girl's death and lied about it. So this should be completely unacceptable. Not only why they did this, but how much they paid to have this done. I'm assuring you that they did not pay for this themselves, and that taxpayer money was allocated for this preferential treatment. Yeah, it's truly remarkable. We're talking with Kimon Freeman, uh, activist of Black Lives Matter in D.C., and the program director and host over at We Act Radio, our D.C. affiliate, the radio station that carries our show. And, the only uh, one in the nation's capital that carries Tom Hartman. There you go, and we're pr- proud to be on it. Come on, with regard to Black Lives Matter in D.C., how is the movement doing? I think this has actually invigorated the movement. Again, there was upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people out there. A good portion of them was all supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I have to remind everyone that you know, there's a 2006 FBI report. This is not the WEAC radio report. This is not the Tom Hartman report. This is not the left-wing report. It's the FBI report. It was not a friend of, of progressive thinkers. And they have reported that as of 2006, all levels of law enforcement have been infiltrated by white supremacists. And that has not been dealt with or acknowledged mm. openly. And that's why you see, like you saw in Portland two weeks ago, the police taking the sides of the right-wingers yeah. and attacking the protesters. Look at Standing Rock. We don't mm-hmm. have to go any farther than that and how people who was trying to protect their water was treated and then see how white supremacists are treated. Yeah, it's all solid. Kimon Freeman, program director and host at React Radio, activist with Black Lives Matter DC. WeActRadio.com is the website. And Kimon, your, your Twitter handle is Gorilla Artist, right? That's correct. And also at React Radio, of course. Cool. Okay. Kimon Freeman, thanks so much, Kimon. Fighting a good fight. Thank you, Tom. Amen. Good talking with you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Jesse in Miami, Florida. Hey, Jesse, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hey, thanks for being there. Hey, uh, a guy made a comment from Columbia that really made me give, give it some thought. Uh, I want to pass it on to you. You might have seen it because it was on uh, Amy Goodman's show. But the guy lost in Columbia uh, for the presidential uh, run recently. And he said, there's no such thing as right and left no more. There's only life and death. 
And I gave that some thought, and I, I think that man is really uh, hitting on something. What do you think? I think that's a great point. I think that, that also the political dynamic in this country has shifted pretty substantially from right-left or Democrat-Republican to insider-outsider, to those with power to those versus those with no power, to those with wealth versus those with no wealth. And increasingly, working-class Americans across the board and across all racial lines and everything are finding themselves in the category of without power and without wealth. You got, you know, roughly half the country can't deal with a $1,000 uh, expense. It, it would wipe them out. I mean, that, that's mind-boggling. You know, and it continues on that line. So I think that that point is really well made. It seems like there's a, a really substantial realignment in American politics happening as a result of 40 years of Reaganomics, you know, taking, taking a stick and kneecapping the middle class or the working class or both. Look at this system, and you just think the dynamics of it is lives don't matter. Profit matters. So yeah. when people's lives don't matter, I mean, it's a choice of life and death if you're going to assume that kind of concept. Yep. And to make it worse, the not only has the Republican Party taken this position for years, I mean, for a century now, but the Supreme Court has as well. And you look back at when the Supreme Court was packed with Republicans in the uh, Lochner era, when they were saying child labor laws are unconstitutional and all this kind of stuff and uh, denying the right to unionize. And then all that changed in 37 because of FDR's political pressure. But but now we're back to that, and we're back to an era where the Supreme Court is actively and aggressively trashing the rights of labor, trashing the rights of working people, trashing the rights of people who want to vote, gutting the Voting Rights Act of 1965. You add all this stuff together, and all you can conclude is that the Republican Party is the party of oligarchy, that they're the party of the very rich and the very powerful, and that's where they get their money, and that's who they serve, and that's who they vote on behalf of. And that's why the things that the majority of Americans want, like net neutrality or Medicare for all or strengthening of Social Security or taxing of the rich to pay for programs that are going to benefit all of us, rebuilding our infrastructure, 21st century energy grid. None of those things are happening because the billionaires who own the Republican Party don't want them to happen. And the Republican Party is worshiping at the altar of, of wealth and power, you know, specifically Koch brothers' wealth and power. Do you think the average American's figuring this out, Jesse? Yeah, and can I get this in quick? Sure. When are you going to get Warren Buffett on there to say, how can we win the class war? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I don't think he's doing interviews these days, but uh, he did come out and say something, uh, you know, uh, putting down the, the Republicans last week. I, I'll have to look around and see if I can find that clip cause I, or that uh, quote, because I saw it a couple of days ago, but I don't remember the exact words. I'm not going to try and pull it out of memory. But Jesse, thank you very much. It's great to hear from you. It's the Tom Hartman program helping you win the water cooler war. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high tech. And yes, I'll say it. It is sexy. This chair is extraordinary and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and, you're, and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. 
Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com right now. Use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. xchairtom.com. Now back to the podcast. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report is underwritten by goatsfortheoldgoat.com. And Ellen Ratner's new book, Loving What You Do, on the line with us is the senior foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, Luke Vargas. You can follow him on Twitter at The Courier. Luke, what's going on in the world today? Hey, Tom. Busy day in the world news headlines. Let's start with the U.S. and Turkey. This spat between the two countries appears to have not been ironed out in meetings yesterday between John Bolton and Turkey's ambassador to the United States. They had a little summit at the White House, basically it seems as if the U.S. has dug in its heels here and said we are not going to remove any of the trade penalties that we slapped on Turkey unless this pastor Brunson, uh, this Christian pastor who's been arrested in Turkey, is released, that we are really just going to go all out on this one issue, which I think is getting experts more and more concerned just because there really is no alternative to Turkey, a Turkey-U.S. alliance, in order to achieve many U.S. aims in that part of the world. I mean, we might like to pretend that that there are, but, you know, this appears to be one of these high-profile, crucial U.S. relations where it would seem like President Trump's sort of personal touch, a la what we saw in Singapore and Helsinki, could be quite useful. So one of the, uh, you know, foreign policy experts I talked to today said, look, that's what we should be hoping for. It's a, a, uh, you know, Trump-Erdogan meeting to try and hash this out. Um, what, What the Turks have done now, uh, after watching a currency crisis on Friday, is they've announced a boycott on American electronics. Uh, President Erdogan giving a big speech today saying, you know, look, whatever we buy abroad, we're going to produce here in better quality and we're going to export it. We're going to boycott U.S. electronics. Quote, they have iPhones. But on the other hand, there are Samsungs, end quote. I, you know, just a personal observation. I've met with dozens of Turkish diplomats through the years. Um, in few instances, Tom, that I find them to be, you know, going for the bargain smartphones. This is a pretty mm. iPhone, yeah. <laughs> iPhone adoring crowd. So we'll see what the implementation is like within the diplomatic ranks. It, it strikes me as is hard to believe Turkey's, uh, you know, domestic cell phone manufacturing industry is going to be able to offer a, a better product, as, as Erdogan says, to trying to patch this relationship up. The big question for me on this, Luke, is why Donald Trump is. I don't know if you read the Financial Times, but we're, there's more and more articles over the last three days that are ratcheting up to higher octaves of hysteria that the crisis in Turkey could become contagious and could take down the entire world economy. Certainly, it's already taking down emerging markets all over the world. And why is Donald Trump willing to risk the entire world economy for one Christian pastor? Is he being leaned on really heavily by Jerry Falwell Jr. or somebody? I mean, what possibly could cause Trump to go to the mat on behalf of one guy. 
Exactly. Can I change gears with Please. two other stories? I don't know if we'll have time to get to both of them. So let me just choose that uh, one, which is that a new report by the Associated Press and you know, researchers at Princeton find that Google continues to track your whereabouts even when you turn off location services, which is a, a setting that they tell people to turn off if they're concerned about privacy concerns. They basically found these researchers that every time you do a search on Google from your mobile, it briefly takes a snapshot of where they believe you are and ties that to your search query, as well as anytime you open up Google Maps, even if you're not using it for directions or you say, hey, don't pinpoint my plots on a timeline. The only people not getting that information are you. They're still collecting behind the scenes. You just can't see exactly what they're collecting. Yeah, and they're monetizing it too. Luke Vargas. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Tom. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Great talking with you. You can follow Luke at The Courier on Twitter. Peter in Winter Haven, Florida. Hey, Peter, what's up? Hey, Tom. So I just wanted to address something that I don't think anyone else has addressed. Uh, if I'm Russia and you're America and I'm your geopolitical enemy since the, the Ukrainian invasion, I would obviously want to support the Republicans. Even if you don't believe the whole uh, Trump-Russia connection, I would obviously want to support the Republicans in the elections. Why? Because fundamentally, Republican policies are not good for America. They'll increase the deficit, might lead to the next crash. They're not going to do anything about pollution. They're going to pollute our air and water. They're not going to do anything about uh, improving race relations. Uh, they're not going to give us any universal health care in case there's a you know, massive uh, calamity and we need uh, universal coverage. So I think that this is something that no, no one's ever really addressing. Why would Russians want to support Republicans in the first place? Well, obviously, not to better America, but to help destroy it. And how do you do that? You obviously support the party that's not going to be good for America. And that will be all. What, yeah, I think those are, all, those are all excellent points, Peter. I would add that because when the Soviet Union fell and every all private property in the Soviet Union was owned by the government, and there was, you know, I mean, it was true Marxism, or actually it wasn't true Marxism. It was a crony version of Marxism. But nonetheless, there was no private property. And so they had to figure out how to move from a communist economy to a capitalist economy. And Milton Friedman and a bunch of guys in the Chicago School of Economics went over there and said, or Milton, I, I'm not sure Friedman himself did. He went to Chile. I, I, he might have been too old to do this in Soviet Union. But they went over to Russia and they said, here's how to do it. And they voucherized everything. And then people sold the vouchers. And these oligarchs were buying up the vouchers and 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 basically the ones who knew the system gamed the system and got insanely rich and the consequence of our libertarian economic advice to the Soviet Union or to Boris Yeltsin more directly is that Russia has become an oligarchy by and large it is ruled by the oligarchs uh, of by and for the oligarchs and to the extent that the Republican Party favors a particular political and economic system in the United States it's oligarchy the Republican Party loves oligarchy. The, the oligarch Koch brothers basically run the Republican Party. They've got a larger political system than the Republican Party itself. They determine who's going who's to be elected, who's going to be even nominated in many cases. And so, of course, you would expect an oligarchic power to look at the Republican Party and say, these are our guys. They're into great wealth and all this kind of thing. So I'm not surprised by it. I, I get your point, too. That's That assumes actual malice on the part of the Russians, which may be the case. But I think that certainly looking at a, a political party and saying, you guys are just like us, that, that explains a lot too, in my opinion. Peter, thanks for the call. Diane in Arkansas, watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Diane, you wanted to talk about Afghanistan? Yes, and I want to say that you allow your callers uh, 
time enough to get their points across. A lot of call-in shows do not do that, so I appreciate that. Yes, I wanted to mention about the Taliban and the Afghan forces are fighting for an Afghan city. It's The spelling of it is G-H-A-Z-N-I. 60 Minutes has done some uh, some programs about uh, the Taliban uh, making a comeback in uh, Afghanistan in a large way. Yeah. But there's intense fighting going on in that city right now for control, and the U.S. is giving uh, air support. Uh, but the situation is, is we're not hearing this on the national news. And while the dumpster tweets away about some employee that was out the White House, uh, Here's Afghanistan, not that I'm for endless war, but we have put a lot of time and treasure and and people involved in that. That's not a reason and, to pour even more in if it's yeah, if it's not going to work. And this thing could all be lost while he tweets. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But but beyond that, I don't think it can be won. I, I think the big lesson of the American Revolution is that nobody likes to be occupied. Bush's idea when he lied us into Afghanistan and when he lied us into Iraq was that he was going to take these countries down. He was going to occupy them. They were going to spontaneously turn into wonderful democracies because of the libertarian economic policies that uh, that you know were being promoted by L. Paul Bremer and others. In the, in, I mean, this Iraq was supposed to be proof. It was, a, it was supposed to be a, a proof of concept that taking down a government and allowing the private sector to rebuild the country actually works. I mean, that, that story is probably the most underreported, unknown story of the entire Iraq war. And they, they, were, they were applying the same philosophy to Afghanistan. You've got, you've, the Taliban never went away. I mean, the Taliban has always been in Afghanistan. And now, of course, you know, a large chunk of Pakistan is controlled by the Taliban, and which is right on their border. And they're just coming right back into the country. It's not, we're not going to get rid of them. It, there's got to be, uh, you know, the country has to be run by Afghan, uh, Afghans or Afghanis or however you say it, uh, f- on behalf of them themselves. And, and my point from the beginning was, I mean, we took down a country that had a $2 billion a year gross domestic product. The average income in Afghanistan, average family income was under $700 a year. If we had simply, instead of we've spent now over a trillion dollars in Afghanistan, it's coming up on $2 trillion pretty soon. If we had instead simply said to Afghanistan, here is $4 billion. You're all twice as rich as you were yesterday. Now just give us bin Laden. They would have done it. In fact, Mullah Omar held a press conference. It was reported in the Washington Post where he said, we are perfectly willing to arrest bin Laden and turn him over to you. And, and George W. Bush said, no, we'd rather have a war. And so here we are. So I think that we need to recognize the horrible mistakes that we made and figure out if we're going to pull out, how can we empower them like the Marshall Plan, where instead of going in and say, we're going to rebuild Germany, we're going to rebuild Japan, instead we provided them with the resources necessary to rebuild their own countries. That, in my opinion, that's the only way to do it. But excellent point, Diane. Thank you for the call. And thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. Bruce in Clinton, Ohio, you want to try in 30 seconds? I'll try real quick. I, I want to talk to you about the Iran sanctions. Is there anything that would keep a third party, say Russia, from either purchasing items from us and reselling them to Iran and making a profit, or say buying oil from Iran and turning around and then selling it to us? 
I don't know. I, I believe that that is how uh, Iran is currently getting around the sanctions, not necessarily with Russia, although, you know, who knows? I mean, Russia is part of the Iran deal that, that was worked out with uh, Obama. That that's probably how, you know, getting around sanctions is typically done. Bruce, thanks for the call. Great question. Thank you all for being with us today. It's been a, a fascinating day. I, I suspect that tomorrow is not going to be any more boring. So please join us again tomorrow. Same time, same bat place. Uh, in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, and that includes you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.